Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Our guest today is Tolu Bamishibe, a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist. Tolu has a JD and PhD, and she performs DEI program evaluation, research, and advocacy. Tolu, thank you for joining us on Reimagining Black Relations. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Tolu, do you mind introducing yourself and share any information you feel comfortable sharing with our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, So my name is uh, Tolu Bamishigbin. I am Nigerian-American, born and raised in the United States. Uh, I did uh, most of um, my K through 12 schooling, as well as my college and law school education in Miami, Florida. I moved to Los Angeles in 2007, and that was a time that was a huge um, moment of transition for me. Uh, Law was, you know, I I loved doing the substantive aspect of the work, right? Being in court, uh, fighting for clients, that that kind of thing, right? Writing motions, the whole, you know, the whole intellectual endeavor of being an attorney. Uh, But the office politics and being a Black woman in uh, law firms was just, gosh, I, I can't even begin to tell you how how much of a maze that was for me in terms of navigating the politics of that space. So um, I left the uh, occupation altogether, got on a plane, moved to Los Angeles and decided to do something entirely new. And so that's how I got into education. I became a teacher in Los Angeles. Uh, I taught uh, math to children in the ninth grade in um, a community in uh, Compton, California. And, um, In that process, I think um, that was when the light really shone for me on a lot of the inequities that we see um, in our systems. And so I I think that was really the moment that kind of put me on this trajectory of racial equity work. And so... um, in the process of teaching and doing some of the professional development courses, um, I got in touch with some people from UCLA. Uh, they were the ones who were doing the teaching in terms of making sure we were up to date on some of the most um, the, some of the most innovative teaching methods for mathematics. And that's where I learned about UCLA's urban education program. And so. Um, Heard about it, was really excited to do it. And then I spent the next um, however many years there working on my uh, PhD in urban education. Did that for a few years, uh, had an opportunity to teach at the university level uh, during graduate school and also after where I worked as a lecturer. And after I left that, I went to work for a uh, research and advocacy firm uh, in Los Angeles, where what we did was we worked closely with grassroots organizations to um, provide the kind of data and the research that they need to amplify their voices in the field. Um, In addition to that, my primary duties there 
was um, I was a project manager overseeing their uh, huge racial equity uh, initiative. So what I would do is go around the state, um, all over California, to help people understand some of the racial inequities that we see in California on multiple measures, whether it's uh, health, housing, education, et cetera, but also um, how we can begin to move the needle on some of these inequities. And so reducing the disparities on those issues. And so uh, this summer, uh, after what happened to George Floyd, it was just really, I think, another transitioning moment for me. I saw where the country was going and I thought to myself, you know, this is really the perfect time to kind of get back to helping organizations think more critically and strategically about equity and inclusion for their employees of color. And so that's why I'm now in the uh, diversity equity um, sector. So Lou, that was pretty impressive. You've experienced it firsthand. You've applied it firsthand. You've taught kids firsthand that are experiencing it. You saw family, kids go through this thing firsthand. And I have no doubt that you're going to be bringing a lot of new insight on this subject as we go through this dialogue, just hearing your perspective. And I would never have thought that within the legal field as a practitioner, you would experience anything that would make you want to leave the field. You understand what I'm saying? And I would like to know a little bit more about that. But before I continue, though, who is your role model? Oh, gosh. When I was a young girl, if you asked me who my role models were, I would have said somebody like Oprah Winfrey, right? That's the kind of thing that all the Black girls said back in the day, right? Because, you know, we saw her as a trailblazer, someone who was um, first in her field, um, enormously rich, philanthropist, all of those things that, you know, you would expect people to look up to, right? And even though, you know, she's still definitely somebody who's in um, my top list of people who I look up to, I have to say that Trayvon Martin's mother and a lot of the other mothers who have lost their children to state violence, those are my heroes. Um, besides the resilience that it takes to uh, lose a child and still kind of go on, you know, living and raising your other children and still, you know, being a mother and a wife. Um, what I have seen from many of these mothers is that their personal loss has galvanized them to get into the movement and start to push for the types of changes that we need for our society, right? And so I, I would say that the, the huge sacrifice that these women make putting their uh, personal story on the line, putting their personal tragedy on the line, basically lending out their children, you know, for our education, hashtags, uh, greater awareness. I, I can't think of, you know, a bigger role model than these women. They're true survivors. Thank you. And there's so many of them with no names. Thank you for sharing that. Tell us a little bit about that, your exposure, your first exposure to racism. The first time when um, it really got into my consciousness was when I was working as an attorney. And, you know, you know, since you're someone who 
who's also a part of the Nigerian diaspora. I'm, I'm sure you can understand that, you know, growing up as a child in America, but still with Nigerian parents, I wasn't socialized to see race and to understand racism, right? Um, when my parents came to the United States, they settled in um, mostly predominantly African-American cities. And so, um, you know, I went to all African-American schools. I went to, you know, all my friends were African-American. I really had this cultural upbringing um, that was practically African-American, right? Um, but I, I think that in terms of the day-to-day -day conversations that African-American parents have with their children about uh, racism and systems and, you know, the talk that a lot of parents have, um, those conversations didn't happen for me because my parents don't have the, the historical context of that, right? They were, you know, born and raised in Nigeria and they moved here in their 20s, um, started a family and we were raised pretty much, you know, as black kids, but not with the awareness of some of the generational trauma that a lot of African-Americans experience, right? And so, you know, I think I was really of the belief that, you know, all I had to do was go to work, be smart, show up, um, don't give anybody any problems and I'll be fine, right? That is not how it works at all, right? Uh, it, it's, it's a lot more complex than that. And I think when I had experienced it firsthand and it was so traumatic for me, I think that was really when it, it, it was, these were the early seeds of my journey, right? My racial equity awareness and journey. Uh, some of the things that I experienced in those spaces was, you know, that, that, that was such a traumatic time for me. Um, talking about it again, you know, can get difficult. But, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me was um, some of the ways I was, you know, kind of talked to um, by some of uh, upper management folks, uh, partners and um, more senior attorneys, uh, the way that when they see uh, Black folks, particularly Black women who seem um, smart and poised and, you know, I guess in their estimation too sure of themselves that um, part of what they need to do is take her down a peg and make sure she knows her place. And so I would say that a good deal of what I experienced was people trying to make sure I knew my place. And I think that part of the conversation that I was talking to you about that um, African-American families have with their children is this understanding about the, the nuance of those relationships between uh, uh, Black folks and non-Black folks. That kind of nuance was not something that I got from my parents. It was something that I had to figure out firsthand and figure out how to navigate on my own. Uh, by the time I got to the, to the point where I figured out, oh, these are some of those unspoken rules, I was over it. I didn't want it anymore. <laughs> I didn't want to be a part of it. And I totally left the field altogether um, because it was just a really painful experience. It, it, it brought me to a place where I said to myself, okay, you know, I wanted to get into this field to help people, but also make a lot of money, right? And then uh, I got to a space where I thought, you know what? It's not about 
making lots of money, right? It's about giving back to your community. And because I was the kind of kid, like I said, who was raised in predominantly African-American schools, I mean, elementary school, middle school, high school, I wanted to be able to go into communities of um, Black and Latino kids to be able to be the kind of positive role model for them, um, show them someone who has um, gone to college, gone to a grad school, done all the hard things and um, survived it and then came back to their community to help. And so, you know, it was the kind of thing that I would say was, was really difficult to experience but maybe it was something that I had to experience for my racial awakening. And also for me to transition from, you know, uh, an occupation where, you know, there's a good deal of money, there's a good deal of status, but to really uh, shift my priorities to figure out what was more important in terms of my own personal fulfillment and my own um, ideas of success. Tolu, let me tell you this straight up. You are a role model for many. I would say a lot of people will push through the grind because of the prestige and the money and the potential. And what I heard you say is that there's more that I can contribute to humanity, to life. And I must tell you, a lot of people are just going through the grind on a daily basis. So thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate it. You know, thank you for that. And I think I think you're right. You know, there are definitely people who are unhappy, who are hurting in, you know, many of these professions where a lot of us are being abused and they're sticking through it. And to be honest with you, Dr. Fajimi, it is killing us. It is killing us, specifically Black women. When we think about the stress from work, when we think about um, the... Uh, maternal mortality rates and uh, heart disease and diabetes and all these things that get uh, exacerbated by stress uh, because of stressful work environments, stressful work relationships, all of that. You know, that was another reason why I wanted to shift into DEI. Not because I wanted, not only because I wanted to help folks be able to navigate those spaces so they can be successful in those spaces, but also to help folks survive those spaces because it's, it's really killing us. And we really have to think about new frameworks of how to be in those spaces, because to me, it's not worth it. Right. And so I think that was a huge impetus for me to, to, to move into this field. I was telling my children, I have three uh, grown kids and a grandson. I think it must have been it wasn't up to a year ago. We were just, I can't remember what we were talking about. And I was telling them, I said, you guys need to understand that even though Black women are not being raped physically anymore, many Black women are being raped professionally. You really need to understand that. The impact that rape had on them um, hundreds of years ago is the impact they are feeling in their workspace based on some of the things you described. It's like invading my mind. You're invading my intellectual ability. You are reducing me to nothing, making me feel like I am a non-entity, but there's nothing I can do about it, right? 
So I told him, I said, you need to understand something and be able to stand. Black women are still being raped intellectually, professionally. So they need to be aware you need to stand up. And that's what you just did without knowing it because what's going on is really abuse. I, I, I do want to add, though, that um, Black women do still face um, enormous numbers when we talk about sexual assault in the United States and, you know, across the world. Black women still face sexual assault. Um, Black women have some of the highest rates of sexual harassment at work. And so, you know, I think a lot of those issues happen side by side, as you mentioned, right? Not only is there the physical violence, but there's also the emotional violence. There's the intellectual violence. There's all of those things that are happening. And for many of us, it's happening all at once. And so, you know, learning to survive it and uh, be resilient and overcome it and also fight back. That's a big lesson. Fight back and also say, you know, this is not for me. And I deserve better than this. And being able to walk away from those spaces, it's really important. It's a double whammy across the board. And if you go to Black men, it's even a separate issues. Somebody told me that when I see a Black male, I feel threatened. What do you think about that? You know, I think that many white people and people of color as well, right, um, have internalized a lot of the messages that we're taught in our society. And, you know, I think that it's a huge part of the the racialization process, right? Um, Because, you know, some people have mentioned this before, but the idea that, you know, people believe that race came first and that racism came after. And the actual uh, sequence of the things is in the reverse. Racism came first and race came after, right? So basically in order to subordinate another group of people, these folks develop these different categories to be able to justify those acts and those practices, right? And so, you know, when we think about the racialization process, a good deal of that process is creating, um, not just categories, but associations with other things. And one of those is criminality, right? And so that's a huge message that people get when it comes to um, Black people in America. I mean, even uh, immigrants understand that that's a part of the messaging that folks get. So the idea that somebody, you know, says that when they see a Black man, they feel threatened, yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely the point, right? That's how America works, right? In order to be able to perpetuate the mass incarceration, the high unemployment rates, the exclusionary practices that we see every day, that's a part of the messaging that people get to be able to feel justified in in those behaviors. Can you just give us a brief synopsis of what Black people are up against or for Uh, when it comes to the legal system? How is it working for Black people in general? Well, so, you know, I think the easiest place to start um, would be mass incarceration. When we see these huge numbers of African-Americans being incarcerated for, you know, many of the crimes that folks are incarcerated for are crimes related to poverty, 
right? And so we basically criminalized poverty in this country. And so, you know, in addition to criminalizing poverty, you know, other... Um, other laws, um, particularly those pertaining to drugs, we know that, you know, African-Americans and whites, you know, use drugs at similar rates, uh, sometimes even uh, maybe traffic or sell drugs at similar rates. But we know that the way mass incarceration works is that African-American communities are targeted in terms of legal enforcement. So that's one piece of it. I think the other big piece of it, you know, goes back to the conversation around George Floyd, and that's the idea around um, law enforcement and lethal use of force and how it is almost impossible to hold these people accountable for killing black folks. Uh, and I think again, you know, part of it goes back to the messaging. If we see African-Americans as criminal, then when we see uh, these types of killings happening to them, we see it as justified. Um, and so, you know, I, I think a huge part of the issue is how African-Americans and um, poverty is framed in this country. And so, you know, that helps to perpetuate the inequities that we're seeing in um, uneven uh, sentences, uneven um, incarceration rates, um, uh, difficulties uh, folks have when they are, um, um, when they rejoin society, right? So not being able to find employment. Um, you know, one of the um, uh, data points that, you know, we often hear uh, bandied about quite a bit is the idea that a white man with a criminal record has a greater chance of getting a job than a black man with no criminal record and a college uh, degree. And so, you know, it goes back to how we see black people in this country. A black man who doesn't even have a, or a criminal uh, record is more likely to, to be seen as criminal or less worthy of employment than a white man who has actually committed a crime. You know, the other piece that is baffling me is the fact that, and research has shown this as well, that even Blacks against Blacks, there is that notion that when a Black person sees another Black person, or he sees a Black person and a white person, they naturally will think that the Black person is most likely to do something unworthy as compared to the white person. Let me give you an example. This is about a documentary where they were trying to determine biases. And so they brought some people together, different racial groups, and they had a black person and a white person that will come out from hiding with a cell phone in front of them. So they will just come out of hiding at the same time. And the person that needs to react is holding a gun. And they said, shoot the person that's holding a gun or that appeared criminal to you. So the two of them comes out at the same time, white person and a black person holding a cell phone. Now, the people that's shooting, they had them, several people that were shooting at different times, all racial groups, all of them were shooting at the black guy. None of them pointed the gun to the white guy, both holding a cell phone. They came out at the same time and everybody was shooting at the black guy. And you know, the interesting part was that the black guy they were shooting at, they actually picked somebody that they knew very well. Person that mingled with them, they chatted, they loved this guy. 
But, you know, at that first instant, they did not see the guy as a friend. They saw him as whatever prompted them to shoot at him. Isn't that ironic? No, there's nothing ironic about it because it, it just goes back to the notion of, you know, how these messages work on all of us. None of us are immune to these messages. You know, that's that's just an example of implicit bias. You know, when we talk about, you know, these different messages, this these messages that we get, and I'm saying, you know, millions of messages over a lifetime, we have to think about, you know, what the media shows us, right? We know that the media is not owned by Black folks, right? We know that the media has an agenda. And so, you know, part of their role is to um, perpetuate the message that African-Americans are more violent or somehow more criminal than other people. And so, you know, just because we are Black folks, we're, we're no more immune to those messages than everyone else, you know? So no, that I don't find that ironic at all. It's pretty sad though, because it's like, you're fighting this battle at all sides. How do you get through this? You know, I, I think what you're touching on is what, you know, a lot of folks in the field called um, internalized racism. And so, you know, we begin to internalize these messages. These messages start to work on us to where sometimes we begin to feel like we're not worthy enough to occupy certain spaces where we feel like, um, you know, people in our communities uh, should be punished harshly for crimes, you know, associated with poverty. Yeah, you know, I, I think that that's you know, that's part of the challenge, not only having to navigate racism, you know, that we experience from the outside, but having to um, to deal with the racism that we internalize for ourselves, which tells us that we're not worthy, we don't uh, deserve to occupy these spaces. And so, you know, one of the things that we'll see in the um, employment um, sector is that you have a good deal of people of color who are smart, capable, definitely worthy of being in these spaces who begin to doubt themselves, they doubt their skills, they doubt their ability, they doubt whether or not they're worthy enough to be in these spaces. And that's a part of the psychological trauma of racism. Let me give you a scenario and I would like you to think from the DEI space, what, what we can do. There is a black lady an executive sits in the boardrooms, always the only black person there. So they, you know, looks around from left to right. The only color she sees is white, white male, white female. That's all she sees. And they need to bring somebody into the board. Okay. And so they presented candidates. So they presented a black candidate. And she took a double take and said, that person doesn't fit because she's not used to seeing that color around the table. And she doesn't see herself, right? She sees others that are sitting around the table. She doesn't see herself. So just by looking at the candidate that was presented, psychologically, that person just does not fit. Now, from the DEI space, how do we crack that knot. How do we get through that? I think the solution will be for everybody, but I wanted to use that example so that one group doesn't feel that, oh, it's always this group that we say is doing all the negative stuff. I mean, it's everybody that's culpable, right? 
So I would have to say that in that particular example, even though we're talking about a woman who might um, who might possess a certain amount of power in this context, one of the things that um, plenty of people of color, plenty of minoritized people understand when they occupy those positions is that it could be taken away. And so they, they, they learn how to fall in line, right? They learn how to continue to perpetuate the status quo because that's what's expected. Um, there are instances, um, several instances where you do have people of color in these spaces who do commit to using their position to be able to bring more people of color along, right? Whether that's uh, other black women, other black folks, other people of color. And part of being able to do that is being able to stand up to the power in those instances and let them know that, you know, if we're committed to creating spaces that are more equitable and more inclusive, we have to be intentional about bringing on more people of color, more women of color into positions like these, and not only bringing them on, but also mentoring them, supporting them, um, and guiding them through that process. Because I think that a huge mistake that a lot of people make is that, you know, once we bring a person onto the role and check that box, then we're done. And that couldn't be farther from the truth, right? We know that the attrition rates for plenty of uh, people of color and all of these different positions are really high. You know, we have these huge turnover rates because we get into these positions and we have people who are either constantly undermining us, people who are looking to prove their initial assumptions that we're not able to do the work, right? And so um, we we um, pose a threat to them and whatever assumptions they have, right? And so they work overtime to push us out of these spaces. And so I think you know, part of the solution to that is not only bringing people like us on board, but making sure that we have the support and not just the um, the mentorship and the sponsorship, but also the economic support, right? So being able to um, uh, fund uh, professional development courses for these folks, right? Um, being willing, willing to... Um, pay for us to sit on different boards to be able to get, you know, uh, a certain type of experience, um, uh, memberships to different um, professional organizations. Thing that we must do, the, the first step is to be committed about bringing folks on board and also being intentional about it. Once we have that, then we make sure, you know, I read something recently that says something about um, uh, Black women who have tended to uh, succeed in these different corporate spaces and who have been you know, elevated to the corporate suite, these tend to be women who have had people in their corner who are not only um, excited about their success, but people who are aggressive about their success. And that's what's important. You can't just support us. You have to be aggressive about making sure that um, those doors are open open for us, but also that we're able to stay in those positions, which requires a good deal of support.
Oh, wow. Thank you, Tolu. You've really hit a lot of the key points I want to bring out in, the, in that question. And what I think I heard, and I think you've proffered some solutions uh, to bring people in. And I also heard you say that those people, like that Black lady in position, is suffering from intellectual fear fear of losing that mm. position of power that she's in. That lady, those people need help too. You know, um, if we look at um, the specific uh, sector of academia, we find that many Black women faculty, which are already, um, we, um, we have a huge shortage of Black women faculty in those spaces. But in addition to having to carry their own workload around um, publishing papers, uh, their teaching workload, et cetera, they also find themselves in a position where they have to do a lot of campus service because you have a lot of students of color who want to be mentored by these women. But the way the uh, tenure track process works, you don't get rewarded for that type of service, right? And so you wanna bring people along, but the way you know the, um, the reward system is structured, we're not able to. And if we are, we're penalized for it, right? And so oftentimes I think women in those positions when they don't help, it's not that they don't want to help, that they don't wanna bring their people along, but the cost to them is so enormous that oftentimes they have to make a choice. And, you know, we see a lot of them who, you know, really break their backs trying to do both, you know, and, you know, going back to the conversation that we had earlier, it's killing us. Yeah, there is a cost to it. You paid. I guess we need to embrace that cost because if we don't, the few that are at the top, they will continue to be fewer. The people at the bottom they procreate, they lead to more people at the bottom, more poverty, more marginalized group. It's sounding to me like we have an obligation to help others. We need to get to that point where everybody has to consider what is my 1% that I need to contribute to this, don't you think? Part of what you mentioned about, um, you know, seeing uh, these inequities being reproduced, right? That's how white supremacy works. It's a self-reproducing system, right? And so, you know, it goes back to what I mentioned a moment ago about being intentional. In order to see different results, we have to be intentional about disrupting these systems, right? We have to restructure these different, so back in the example of um, university faculty, right? We have to restructure that reward system. It can't just be in order to get tenure, you have to publish however many articles a year. Part of the uh, tenure process should include, especially if you're a woman of color, being able to mentor other women of color. Because if we say that having a more diverse university is to everyone's benefit, we have to show that, right? We have to give people the support and the reward structure that will help us reproduce that. But if we are not giving those incentives to be able to, you know, be elevated to these different um, uh, uh, positions in uh, academia, but also be able to bring other people along, if that's not going to be rewarded, we're going to still continue to reproduce inequitable 
outcomes where we're not seeing enough students of color in these spaces. My gosh, Tolo, I have so many questions for you. But before we wrap up, can you speak to a predominantly white audience about what the next steps needs to be? So, you know, before I came on, I was thinking about, you know, the topic that you sent me. And I thought to myself, okay, what are some of the major issues here? And I think when we think about bridging the gap between uh, the Black community and other communities, I think one of the first steps is to disabuse ourselves of this notion that a Black agenda, which is you know, um, better access to quality schools, reproductive justice, uh, criminal justice reform, um, access to uh, tuition-free education, access to housing, all of those things. We have to disabuse folks of the notion that these are only Black issues. These are issues that positively impact everybody, right? And so, you know, even though, you know, we might see that African-Americans might be more disproportionately impacted by these issues, these are issues that can help everyone. And so once we change the, the messaging around these only being Black issues and, and get more white and Latino and Asian American and uh, indigenous communities on board with the idea that, the issues that will help propel the African-American community, the Black community, the issues that will help propel us help everyone. They help everyone. And so once we get on board with that, I think that we can build uh, bigger coalitions. We can build more support. We can um, see um, more uh, proactive legislation on these issues. And then we'll start to see the different societal changes that you know, we're looking to see in terms of um, uh, upholding these ideas that we have around uh, democracy and freedom and access and and, and liberty. So in, in order to see those things, we have to stop making these issues, issues that only Black people would benefit from. These are issues that everyone benefits from. Okay, so I heard you say this is a people issue. I think that's pretty profound. If you need to speak to a predominantly Black audience, what would you tell them? Stay in there. Stay in the fight. You know, Black folks, we're doing everything that we need to be doing. You know, there's this huge misconception that we're not doing enough. Uh, we're doing everything that we need to be doing. And so, so hang in there. I love you all. Black lives do matter. And, 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 and keep up the fight. Oh, you're so sweet, Tolo. Thank you so much. Look, I know I've asked different questions in different directions. I took advantage of having you right here, right now. But is there anything you would like to share that I've not asked you? I think we did touch on this, but I can't um, stress this enough. As a Black woman, as the mother of a Black girl child, I love Black women. I want to see us succeed. I want to see us thrive. I want to see us flourish. And I want us to be able to build the kind of community infrastructure and the personal frameworks to be able to demand better, right? Whether that's demanding better in our personal relationships, our family relationships, our romantic relationships, our work relationships, I want us to be able to walk away 
from the situations that are killing us every day. Well, thank you. Yes, you modeled that, right? I would like you to come back. Happy to come back. I'm happy to come back. <laughs> I really appreciate your coming, Tolu. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate Tolu because she covered an array of topics from the criminal justice system to education, diversity, equity, inclusion, and even many more that time did not permit us to cover. She was truly a remarkable contributor. So what are the critical points? First to Blacks, she said, stay in there. You are a fighter and you should continue to fight. Secondly, for those of you in positions of authority, She wants you to rid yourself of intellectual fear and be intentional about disrupting the system, whether it's through mentorship of other Blacks, sponsorship, providing economic support, or offering membership to professional organizations to improve them. Be supportive and aggressive about others' success. Thirdly, she referenced the misconception about you not doing enough. She wants you to just stay focused and continue the fight. She also suggested that you should not remain in an abusive professional relationship. I'm sure you remember her life example. And finally, she reaffirmed that Black lives do matter. To non-Black people, she prefaced her recommendation with having to disabuse yourselves of the notion that these are simply Black agenda. She said better education, Equitable justice, criminal justice reforms, improved housing are all examples of issues that impact everybody. Although Blacks are disproportionately impacted, but once the messaging is changed, everyone can see the good in the change. She strongly believes that this change in messaging can jumpstart the bridging of the gap between Blacks and non-Blacks. Democracy, freedom, and liberty will benefit every member of the society. Thank you again, Tolu. To all our listeners, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and encourage them to subscribe on yourblackmatters.com. Also, if you have any feedback, please email me at francesca at yourblackmatters.com. Tolu, thank you for your contribution to the history we're making. I'm excited to be a part of it. God bless you and your family. To all our listeners, may God bless you as well. And may the Lord bless the United States of America. See you next time. Bye-bye.